This spring, the Food and Drug Administration released new draft guidance on communicating about risks in direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising. The proposed rules would allow companies to disclose only the most common and most serious risks posed by a product, and they would encourage the companies to present that information in a clear and simple format. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Christopher Robertson, a professor at the University of Arizona College of Law. Professor Robertson has written a perspective article about the potential effect of the proposed rules and why they may not go far enough. Professor Robertson, as you point out in your article, the United States is one of only two countries in the world that allow direct-to-consumer advertising of pharmaceuticals. Why have other countries prohibited this kind of advertising, and what's kept the United States from banning it as well? Well, I think these other countries have had the same impulse that regulators in the United States have had which is the desire to protect consumers from potentially risky products that may not be effective for them, and instead defer to physicians and and other prescribers who are in a better position to really know about the range of choices that are available and advise a patient on which drugs, if any, are right for them. The difference is just these other countries have had a less aggressive conception of the First Amendment or whatever might be comparable in their legal systems which in the United States has really constrained the role of regulators to prevent this sort of direct-to-consumer advertising. It's our broader notion of free speech in the United States, and of course some of the philosophy that goes with it about individual decision-making and autonomy and empowerment that has preserved a space for direct-to-consumer advertising in the United States and New Zealand. You also point out in your article that many consumers find the lengthy risk disclosures that up to now have been required by the FDA to be difficult to understand, or they don't even attempt to understand them. So what was the original goal behind requiring such detailed disclosures, and why haven't they worked? One conception of it really goes along with this First Amendment free speech philosophy, that it's almost unobjectionable for the regulator here, the FDA, to require a company to provide additional information, as opposed to banning their speech altogether or regulating what they can say. So it's been thought that disclosure is sort of a light touch by the regulator. It never hurts to give people more information. And so that's what the pages and pages of fine print that you see in Golf Digest, advertising a drug that's being targeted towards men, that's what it's designed to achieve. And it's really not unlike the pages and pages of small print that come with our home mortgage or other consumer product. It's just thought that this is a way the very least we can do is put information in front of consumers to make better decisions. How much evidence is there behind what the FDA is now proposing? Disclosing only the most common and most serious risks, is it clear that that will benefit consumers? I think it's probably clear that it won't hurt consumers. The evidence base in this area actually is not as big as you might hope that it is. This is an area of sometimes called human factors research that studies how individuals use information This is an area where there's a bit of a gap between the basic science, where psychologists might be studying it in an abstract sense, and the very applied science of how consumers would decide about drugs in particular. There has been some really interesting research explaining and developing ways that we really could empower consumers, completely redesign these disclosures to help people make sense of them. That's not what the FDA is doing here. So this very small step, I think the science suggests it probably won't hurt people, but there's no great evidence that it's going to profoundly change consumer decision-making at all. And on the company side, are there incentives for companies to make their disclosures simpler? And do you think that these guidelines are going to produce changes in marketing by companies? 
Well, I think the the scale is primarily tipped against companies uh, making these changes, and let me explain why. On the one hand, of course a company would prefer not to disclose some risk that might sound scary to a consumer but is actually unlikely to materialize. Companies obviously don't want their advertising to scare away potential patients or consumers. But on the other hand, advertisers do continue to face liability, primarily under state tort laws for failing to warn about genuine risks of their products. So even if one of these relatively rare risks materializes, if a jury someday decides that a company has buried the risk or hidden it or failed to communicate it, then a company could face liability on that basis. So I really think that you might see companies saying, thanks, FDA, it's nice to have this additional discretion, but I'll tell you what, fine print is relatively cheap. We might as well just keep it all there. And so in that sense, the FDA's reform here may not make a whole lot of difference. You write that, assuming here that companies may take up these new guidelines, you write that if risk disclosure in direct consumer advertising is going to work, it has to be done in a format that would be usable for the consumer. So what do you think an ideal disclosure system would look like? One thing I'd like to see us move towards is a more realistic information that is digestible about both the risks of the product, but also the benefits of the product. One thing that this regulation does not do at all is suggest ways to more accurately inform consumers about the benefits. Of course, that's what the company's advertising is designed to do, but it suggests the benefits in the most nebulous sorts of ways. Or what a consumer really wants to know is, is this product worth the extra money and the risk that I'm going to take on with it? And so there's been some really interesting research that's looked at ways to portray the benefit information, actually reporting the clinical trials out to patients in ways that they can see how much of a difference it made on the median. There's a concept of the number needed to treat that is used to analyze the cost-effectiveness of drugs. And that sort of concept, seeing how many patients would have the natural history of the disease with or without the drug, that is really useful and has been shown to improve decision-making. So that leads me to my last question. What can individual physicians do to help their patients make those fully informed decisions about drugs? Well, there's a real challenge here, of course, because the physician's time is limited and only has so much that he or she can attribute to sort of decoding the advertising that the patient may have been exposed to over the last six months since the last time the physician met with the patient. But I think it really is important, and physicians know this, that they retain that final decision on whether to write a script. Of course, it's the patient's choice of whether to consume that drug and buy it. This is no substitute for informed consent. But I think the physician really needs to have that dialogue to explain whether the brand-named advertised drug really does have proven efficacy over the generic or whether one class of drug that happens to be more heavily advertised really is responsive to the patient's needs. So I think the fact that the FDA is taking a relatively light regulatory touch here and changing very little, actually, just reaffirms the need for physicians to take an active role and meet that responsibility to counsel their patients accordingly. Thank you, Professor Robertson.